It was completely dark. I see him standing at the back door. Bam! He's getting some kind of sick thrill from what he's doing. He just got pleasure in inflicting pain on other people. As soon as I walked in, the blood had just soaked all the way through. He looked over his shoulder as I drew my weapon. He chased her, he hit her with an axe handle. A blunt instrument to beat the victims to death. It was just so brutal. There was no emotion. He's a serial killer. Traumatic, it was devastating. It was like front page news. It was like a big deal. I mean, it was always there every day. Thank God we stopped him. August uh, 2018, came home, opened my mailbox to find a note in there from a local reporter um, saying that I would I like to comment about this, uh, the findings of the DNA connecting Alex Ewing to the Denver murders. And I, um, I was, at first I was like, disbelief, shock, you know, I thought it was some kind of prank. And then I was like, immediately went in and realized the, the note looks pretty legitimate. So I got on my computer and I looked it up and I saw, oh yeah, this is real. What was real was this. More than 34 years after she survived a violent encounter with Alex Christopher Ewing, Nancy knew for the first time that the same man was accused of four brutal attacks in Colorado. Attacks that left four people dead and two others horribly injured. And that meant confronting a heartbreaking reality. And then I thought about all those families and how, how traumatic that was for them and that that could have been us. You know, it could have been really, you know, we were very fortunate. We survived. I can't imagine the devastation those families have gone to and, what the, and how they've been haunted all these years. Um, yeah, that's pretty much. And then, it, then I... Then it took me back, you know, to 1984. I'm Kevin Vaughn, an investigative reporter at Nine News in Denver. This is part two of Blame, the Fear All These Years. We're telling the story of hammer attacks in January 1984 that left four people dead and sent shockwaves through the Denver community. Attacks that would go unsolved for more than 30 years. Attacks that were linked by DNA to Alex Ewing in the summer of 2018. On that Thursday night back in 1984, August 9th, Nancy Berry was preparing to slip into bed in the home she shared with her husband Chris and their two young sons, one of them just a baby. They lived in a tan stucco house with five trees out front in a sparsely populated area of Henderson, Nevada. At night, the lights of the Las Vegas Strip twinkled in the distance, but along Racetrack Road where the Berries lived, it was dark and quiet with few neighbors and open desert just across the road. You know, at the time, it was way out in the boonies. At the time, Nancy had never heard the name Alex Christopher Ewing, had no idea he was facing an attempted murder charge in Kingman, Arizona. Bam! No idea that he'd been accused of attacking a man with a rock in the middle of the night. They stopped for gas. That he'd escaped earlier that afternoon at a Texaco station a few miles away. Or that two of her neighbors had called police. We just saw a man reporting a strange man prowling around their homes, shirtless and wearing a pair of red jogging shorts. Just getting ready to get in bed and turn off the light. And then I was like... She heard her baby cry and she knew he needed a bottle, heading to the kitchen to get it. Suddenly, she realized she was not alone. So I think the light, the light was still on in the kitchen. I guess I was probably getting ready to go. I wonder why the light was still on in the kitchen because I saw him clear as day standing there. 
Maybe we left it on at night normally, I don't remember, because the light was on in the kitchen, unless I don't think I turned it on when I went in there, because I don't think he saw me at first. For a moment, she stared, thinking it might be her brother-in-law. Then she saw the club in his hand and bolted for the bedroom. What happened next is fixed in Nancy's memory and laid out in detailed files and records locked away for decades in Las Vegas. A couple blocks from fabled Fremont Street, where Sin City's oldest casinos show the Vegas of an earlier era, sits a modern high-rise courthouse, palm trees lining the steps leading to the front doors. We headed there on a Tuesday morning, navigated a long line at the metal detectors, and rode the elevator to an upper floor. A clerk led us through a security door and down a long hallway to a set of double steel doors, painted maroon. Three signs on those doors greeted us, an orange one that says simply biohazard, one that says do not enter authorized clerk's office personnel only, and one that may have been left by a mischievous employee, beware of dog. Behind them, the evidence vault, where photographs and documents detailing the attack on Nancy and Chris Berry were kept all these years in paper bags and cardboard boxes. Transcripts, Polaroids, mugshots, black cheetah tennis shoes, it was all kept. And then there, among all the other stuff, was an old cassette tape with a green label. Scotch taped to one side is a note card with a bright orange evidence sticker on it. State's exhibit number 28. It's a recording of 911 calls, including a harrowing call from Nancy Berry herself. The audio is hard to hear at times, but in Nancy's voice, there's the raw terror of the attack and the minutes that must have seemed like hours, not knowing if the strange man in her house would kill her entire family before police could get there. Somebody has come in here. I'm bleeding. That primal urgency of Nancy's voice is juxtaposed with the Nancy of today, dressed in boots, stylish jeans, and a gray sweater, talking calmly about the bewildering experience of being a victim of random, unexplained violence. Told Chris. Her husband was already in bed, half asleep. And he jumped up, and then all of a sudden, he's being, you know, pounded in the head. Um, I did at one point put my hands up. I remember touching it. It was a weathered axe handle. And then I remember going like this. Going like this was grabbing for it as though it was a pull-up bar, pushing it away, and shrinking in fear. And the next thing I remember is I've got the phone in my hand and I'm dialing zero. So I blacked out for a little bit. And then, um, yeah. Then, then, oh, then as I had the phone in my hand, I saw him, he was standing just across the bed. We make eye contact, and then he comes around, and I put the phone down, and then I just dive down on the bed like that. She uses her hands to demonstrate, crossing them over the back of her scalp, trying to protect the back of her head in a kind of duck and cover move. And then he starts pounding away, <laughs> and I'm yelling, stop, stop. And then I realize at one point, you know, I'm telling myself, just be quiet, play dead. You know, that's the only way he's going to stop. So that's what I did. And I don't know if that stopped him or 
if the thing broke because they found it, the axe handle on the table broken too. So <gasps> I don't know what really caused him to stop. At some point, Nancy picked up the phone again. Can you give me a cross I'm sorry, what? We're dying. We're dying. We're dying. We're dying. I'm sorry, what? Hurry. This is the worst thing. Okay, we have not going. We're dying, Nancy said. We're dying. Ma'am, do you need an ambulance? Yes, yes. Hold on. Tell me what happened. This guy, can you look at the With a club? We're bleeding to death. Okay, ma'am, they're on the way. If the guy's still there in the house, I don't know if they're still there. Give me a description of your house, okay? What is your house look like? Okay. Ma'am, they're on the way. Can you give me a description for the house? It's got forest trees. It's a Okay, what color is the house? Come here, Nicholas. It's a tan house with trees in the front. Is there a wall around it? No. It's a tan house with five trees in the front yard. No wall. Go here. Go here. He's still there. Do you see him? No. I can't see those. Okay. I have to. My officer is there, okay? I think they're just right there by the house. So if the officer comes in, it's them. Do you know if the guy left out of the house? I don't know. I can't believe it. Why did he do this to us? Do you have any idea who it was? I have no idea. Was he white? Was he white? Uh-huh. Okay, did he have a shirt on? Just red shirt. Okay. Color of hair, was it brown or blonde? Light brown. Is he still there? Is he still there? Do you know? I don't know. Okay. Okay, you were at the camp house. No, that's not. Okay, the officer's there? I don't know. Are the officers there? Yes. Do you see them? They're right here. Finally, there were officers in the room, including a rookie on patrol who would still carry what she saw that night decades later. Can I hang out now? Help us, help us, why did they do this to us? Why did they do this to us? Again, why did they do this to us? Why did they do this to us? Got some people thumped down here. Those first officers saw things preserved now in memory and in court files and photographs like the pickaxe handle wielded by the attacker, resting on a table in the couple's kitchen, one end stained with what appears to be blood. It's snapped in two, mute testament to the violence unleashed on Chris and Nancy Berry. So I was about a mile or so away from where the Berries lived, 
um, when the call came out that somebody had broken into their house and hurt them. The Mrs. Berry was on the phone with our dispatcher. Rookie patrol officer Yuta Chambers was among those who rushed to the scene. And in reality, Thump doesn't begin to describe what was done to Nancy and Chris Berry. Even today, it's really hard to describe. These two women, a victim and a cop, recalling the brutality of that night more than 35 years ago. Both my hands, um, just contusions all across my back and shoulders, back of my arms, a um, couple of, um, two or three. I think there's um, like two inch, inch and a half, two inch wounds on the top of my head. And then the surgery. The surgery. It happened kind of afterwards. Um, I started hearing a, a noise in my ear, a little, like a little bird chirping. And then it turned into a swishing. And uh, they found that there's like, a, I guess, like an artery or something was leaking or whatever. And then it became like a fistula. Um, so they had to go in there and snip, snip. Today, Nancy Berry shows no outward signs of the damage that was inflicted by a man with a club. So these are the ones of Chris, which I know you've seen. But on her dining room table rests a file folder, documents and photographs from the attack that altered her life in innumerable ways. And when she pulls out some old pictures... And so this is, mine were just bruises. Those wounds are cast in painful relief. One wrist in a cast, the other in a splint, the right side of her head shaved, a pencil-straight surgical scar beginning in front of her ear and stretching toward the top of her head. But as bad as her injuries were, they paled when compared to what her husband endured. He was wearing white underwear, and they had, the blood had just soaked all the way through the underwear. And he was cl crawling through the closet trying to get away because he thought that the suspect was still there. I remember when he got up to go to the closet to get away, and he was crying, kind of screaming. And he had an X on his back because he had hit him twice with the ax handle. And then they made an X on his back. And I remember seeing that and going, oh my gosh, you know, how, how is he still, you know, alive? Swaths of blood stain the white sheets of the couple's bed in a fading snapshot that's among those records kept at that Las Vegas courthouse. His injuries was more like, you know, long-term. I mean, he was long-term infected, like he lost his sense of smell. His jaw was, mis you know, out of alignment. So his bite was all messed up, couldn't taste food anymore. His eye kind of was set back in his head and, and then scarring. So yeah, most of his injuries were in his head. And he has no memory of it for like a whole month before. He said the last thing he remembers is coming back from our 4th of July vacation in Tucson visiting my family um, for 4th of July. That's the last thing he remembered is coming back. He thought maybe we had a car crash or something. When he woke up in the hospital, he had no idea. Chris Berry died in 2011. That he lived through the attack 27 years earlier is all the more shocking when you consider a color photograph of him taken as he lay in a hospital bed. There's only one word to describe it, horrific. His eyes are closed, appearing to be swollen shut. Sutures used to close two gashes across his forehead, each several inches long, look almost like zippers. His right eye is purple, verging on black, the lid bulging badly. His left eye in some ways looks worse, puffy and covered with a massive rosy contusion that stretches all the way down his face. But his wounds went far beyond the physical damage. 
I was in the hospital for a few days and then I went over there to visit him. But he was very agitated, had a lot of angry outbursts. And they said that was pretty normal for people with head trauma. I had only been on the department for just 11 months when this incident occurred. And um, it was the most brutal um, assault that um, I had seen through that time, but for most of my career. He was definitely different after the fact. You know, the head injuries caused him to have a lot of angry outbursts, you know, kind of irrational thinking. Um, and he used to, like, sleep really soundly all the time. You couldn't even wake him up, couldn't budge him to wake him up. And then all of a sudden you could touch him and he just, his arms would be flaying, flaring. Even though he doesn't remember the attack, he would just be very, you know, easily disturbed during his sleep. So it sounds like he had impacts for the rest of his life as well. He lost his job. Um, it was kind of like it was, it was just three guys, you know, kind of entrepreneurial, having their own investment company, and they were doing okay. But once this happened, kind of dissolved. There was no medical insurance. So financially, it took a toll on us, you know, and trying to get to doctors and having the two kids, just surviving through all of it was kind of tough. These two women, a cop and a victim, affected for years by that night. The first five or so years after, you know, it was something that that I thought about frequently, you know, especially if I drove in that part of the city. Um, not so much lately until I heard that there was this, um, that they, he had committed other crimes in Colorado. And that kind of brought it all back. You know, I think until, but you know, it affected my life. I mean, it was always there every day for like the first year. You know, for sure, maybe two or three years even after, I would say. It was just always, every day, every minute, it was there. I think he's the first person that I personally believe um, just to be kind of evil. And I never really interacted with that. I, you know, I interacted with a lot of people through the years that are bad people and make bad decisions and, and hurt people. But just to do it purely for fun or whatever it was that he got out of it, um, he's the only one that I had that kind of interaction with. You know, you just, it didn't, didn't go away. Um, always having, looking over my shoulder, you know, having my back up against the wall, you know, being uncomfortable, checking the windows and the doors, you know, not being able to sleep without someone else being in the house. The only solace, the only one, was that Nancy and Chris Berry's two sons, sleeping in another part of the house, weren't touched. It's been a long time since that night in the tan house with the five trees out front. You wouldn't know it now. Nancy's poised and matter-of-fact about the ordeal. But it took her more than a year after she found that note left in her mailbox by a reporter to find the voice to speak publicly. And I, you know, spent a lot of time over the next week, I think, just feeling, remembering all of, all of the, the whole incident and replaying it and trying to sort of see what's happening online with the case and what's happening with him. I talked to, uh, I had a message. Oh, yeah, that's another thing. When I got on my computer, 
I uh, saw all these messages flashing on my phone, you know, and so I start listening to these messages, and it's like all these, you know, you were one. <laughs> Um, uh, one of the one of the, the DAs from Colorado, um, some other reporters, you know, wanting to speak to me and comment on it. But I was trying to get my thoughts together to make something, but I just couldn't. I was just feeling way too anxious. It was just too overwhelming for me at the time. Um, and knowing that it was still just kind of pending, you know, his extradition is pending and they still have to go through the hearings and all of that. Yeah, it just kind of been... Um, waiting to kind of follow that and, you know, so about a week. It took me about a week until I started to feel like, okay, this is past. The media's going to leave me alone <laughs> and I can just go about my business, um, you know, and just see what happens. Maybe I'll be ready to talk later. So that's why, you know, today we're talking. Yeah. I was open to talking now because I feel like Maybe it's important to share the story. I don't know if it's going to benefit anybody. Maybe it'll benefit me even. So I thought it'd be good to, to uh, share that with you today. When the responding police burst into her home, Nancy Berry knew at last she and her husband were safe. We're going to get help. But the nightmare wasn't over. The man with the club was on the lamb vanishing into the night, leaving behind a trail of blood and a few footprints in the sandy soil, haunting a frightened community. The manhunt was on. We got a call from dispatch that Ewing was there at that moment. And again, we'd heard this. This has been going on for three days. Okay, so we came down and, and I have to say, we were not expecting to see anything. You know, we were, we were gonna check it out, be, do our due, due diligence. And as, as we arrived, there is Ewing. Next time on Blame, the fear all these years. Blame is a production of KUSA TV 9 News in Denver, Colorado, and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer. Anna Houston is producer and editor. I'm your host, investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. The sound mix was by Richard Humphreys. There's much more, including photographs, interviews, and some of our old coverage of this case at 9news.com blame. If you like blame, the fear all these years, subscribe at Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or any popular podcasting app. And check out our first two investigative podcasts. Blame, was the death of Jill Wells an accident or murder? And blame, lost at home. You can like us on our Facebook page, Blame Podcast. And if you've got suggestions or tips for a future investigative podcast, reach us at blame at 9news.com. 